This is the Bridge Church Podcast, an audio ministry of the Bridge Church, a Nazarene community in Oahu, Hawaii. Please visit us in person or check us out online at bridgenaz.org. We hope to hear from you. We hope to see you. God bless. Mahalo. Well, although it's only a string of four notes, the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony may be the most well-known string of four notes across the globe. Nearly everyone recognizes the notes. Not everyone may recognize the song by its title, but nearly everyone knows the tune. You know it, right? It's the fame dun-dun-dun-dun. Some say Beethoven heard a bird singing, and that was his source of inspiration for the notes. Others aren't so sure. Regardless, the fame dun-dun-dun-dun later became a source of inspiration for the British Army. In fact, one soldier noticed the connection between the song and their Morse code. In Morse code, the code for victory was three short beeps followed by one long beep. Beep, 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 beep. Many later referred to the first portion of Beethoven's song as something like the victory stanza. Supposedly, however, when Beethoven wrote the song, the four notes were meant to indicate fate knocking at the door. Right? And in popular culture, that's kind of how the notes have been used and or understood. Right? When something bad or ominous is about to happen, it wouldn't be a surprise to hear dun 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 dun. Right? If we had a soundtrack to go with today's focal passage, uh, Genesis 37, I think we'd uh, get repeated instances of this all over the place. Because as you've probably come to expect, we can't go long in Genesis without some bad stuff happening. And what we're about to read today, well, it's some bad stuff, but here's what I want to suggest to you. All this bad stuff, all this family feuding, it all stems from a big misunderstanding. All of it. And now, as I say that, I I realize that the way I'm going to ask you to think about this story today is probably going to be different than most of you have ever thought about it or heard it taught or heard it preached. I, I could be wrong, but I think there's a good reason to see things the way that I'm suggesting. I think there's good reason to see that this all stems from a big misunderstanding. And I think there's so much to learn from this. If we're open to letting God use the story to stretch us, it stands the chance of bearing much fruit in our lives. So let's jump into the story. We pick up at Genesis 37.1, and it begins like this. Jacob lived in the land of his father's travels, in the land of Canaan. Now, as soon as we read the opening lines of this chapter, what we should be hearing is dun-dun-dun-dun. For starters, notice that it begins with the name Jacob. Jacob has already been renamed Israel twice. And now, back to Jacob? Yeah, in this portion of the story, it's going to mix it up. Why? Why the switching of the names for him? Well, here, here's my thinking. It's as if Jacob moves uh, two steps forward as Israel, then three steps back to Jacob. God has given him this new name and this opportunity to be a new person, but it's a struggle. Jacob has trouble with it. You see, the name Jacob, Yaakov, seems to represent the man Jacob as a family man. But the name Israel 
is more specific. It's used to represent the man as the leader of a new and budding nation. And so whenever the story wants to indicate something having to do with politics or connotes something to do with his office as a leader, such as issues of dealing with inheritances for the tribes, well, then the name Israel seems to be used. But I think Jacob, as most of us would, uh, has an incredibly difficult time navigating the two roles and switching between them. And so even just this first word, Jacob, here should tip us off to something. In fact, oftentimes the first word of a story in Scripture should do that. But here's something to take from this. The, the Scripture's in the hiding the fact that, that sometimes it takes a long time to live into who we're meant to be. It takes a lot of life, a lot of experience, a lot of hardship, a lot of stumbling and falling back, a lot of defaulting to the old self to learn hard lessons. I mean, can you relate to that? <laughs> I'm sure you can. But there's more, of course. The, the text continues, Jacob lived in the land of his father's travels. Who was his father? You remember? Isaac. Dun, 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 dun. And what is Isaac most well known for? If you think about his whole life story, what's he most well known for? Well, for his dad's, you know, Abraham's misunderstanding. His dad's misunderstanding that almost killed him, Isaac. You remember that, right? God wanted Abraham to dedicate Isaac to him, but instead Abraham misunderstood and nearly sacrificed and killed him. Yeah, dedicate and sacrifice, you know, are the same Hebrew word. And that misunderstanding almost led to Isaac's father killing him. Dun, 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 dun. Right? This verse right here, could have just opened with Jacob lived in the land of Canaan, but it doesn't. And so by inserting the reference to his father in there, it's framing it a certain way. And we're not supposed to miss that. Why? Because what we're going to see is that by the end of this chapter, it's so easy to spot, like father, like son. In the same way that Abraham's big misunderstanding led to familial disaster, what happens here is that Jacob and his sons are going to have some misunderstanding, and it's going to lead to some family separation and family heartache too. All right, let's continue reading here. Verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Sounds familiar to what we just read last week. These were the generations of Esau. These are the generations of Jacob. There's Jacob again. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding with the flock, was feeding the flock with his brothers. He was a boy or a young man with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. Joseph brought a bad report of them, that is of the brothers, maybe I don't think it's the wives, probably the brothers, Jake's, Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. All right, so here we get a marked contrast with the previous chapter, which focused on the generations, or in Hebrew, the toledot of Jacob. This contrast is purposeful and important to pick up on. Because, all right, we're back to the family line of Jacob, and we're leaving Esau. And by the way, I find that at this point in Genesis, with all of the names, look, I just kind of did it. It can be very, very easy to get lost or to get mixed up. So up on the screen, I provided a chart of the family line of Jacob. You can take a picture of this with your phone or your camera, or whatever, because it'll help you keep things straight as we go through the last 13 chapters of Genesis. For those of you using the app, that picture's also in there. 
But trust me, it's easy to get mixed up from here on out. It's easy. And try to keep this in mind that Jacob is Joseph's dad. One way to keep it right is to think of the three patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph isn't listed there. So Jacob precedes Joseph, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Anyway, while this version of Genesis is still Jacob's story, really, Joseph is a major part of it. In many parts, he's actually the main subject. And we learn here that Joseph is 17 years old. Now, in Hungarian, he's a sitenarik. Sitenarik. Right, that's our word of the week, by the way, sitenarig, a person or animal that's 17 years old. Pretty cool, sitenarig, a Hungarian word. Joseph's a sitenarig. He's still a teenager. His job as a teenage boy was to work in the fields with his brothers to take care of the sheep. You all know this. All right, let's keep going. Um, let's, let me point out, though, that uh, at this point, before we read some more, that he he was a young boy comparable in age, we're looking at the chart again, but still younger than Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher, the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. All right, so they're near the same age. Okay, but then we get another dun-dun-dun-dun, right? The text says that Joseph, you remember just what we just read, snitched on them, that he brought a bad report of them to the father. This can't be good. This seems to be a vehicle to create bad blood. Again, the story being framed in a certain way. Fate is knocking. The horizon is ominous. Dun, 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 dun. Right? All right. Now, let's uh, keep reading here. Let's get to verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. All right? Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a special tunic. There it is again. Dun, 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 right? Israel, notice, not Jacob here, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. This is not good. We've already seen partiality like this with Jacob, haven't we? You remember when we were told that he loved Rachel more than Leah, and by extension, loved her more than Bilhah or Zilpah. Jacob's partiality didn't work then, and we already know it isn't going to work now. He hasn't figured out that it's going to cause more problems, all his partiality. And the text says that Jacob loved Joseph most because he was the son of his old age. And of course, he wasn't the youngest, again, the chart. Benjamin was the youngest, but Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, and he was the next to last. And for quite some time, he did live in the role of the youngest and was always right by his dad's side. That wasn't lost on all his brothers. They saw it. They had to watch it all day, every day. They had to watch dad coddle Joseph while he was tough on them. In fact, that's what the very next verse tells us. Let's read. Verse four, his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers and they hated him and couldn't speak peaceably to him. Ready? Do it with me. Here we go. Dun, 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 dun. That'd be fun to do if we were uh, together in person, but wherever you're at, just go ahead and join in and do that. So the partiality and favoritism wasn't lost on the others, on the brothers. It wasn't fair. In this past week, I saw with my own eyes just how frustrating parental partiality can be. I was watching two of my kids play basketball, and I was kind of loosely refereeing the game. But to help the player out who was losing, I was being partial to them, purposefully. I wasn't making as many calls on them when they were fouling or 
whatever. And I was making hard calls on the other kid that was winning. And after a few minutes of that, one of the kids just exploded and lost it, started crying and accusing me of being unfair. It was true. I was being unfair. I thought the kid could handle it. I thought the kid would be up to the challenge. That was only over a period of about 10 minutes or less. And I saw the devastating effects of partiality. When something like that happens day after day, year after year, I'm sure it adds up. And as you, and you have a, a very explosive situation on your hand over a course of days, months, weeks, and years, just like we have in this story. All of Jacob's children were ticked off at young Joseph and their dad, but mainly Joseph. They were sick of it. It was unfair, and they'd had enough. And the text says that they couldn't even speak peaceably to him. I mean, you ever been in a situation like that with a family member? Feel like they were incapable of speaking kindly to you? Like they were incapable of showing you grace? Like they were incapable of apologizing? Incapable of being peaceful? I'll bet some of y'all can relate to that. Well, Based on what we know about what happened in Shechem, the sons of Jacob, right, they're full of fire. Knowing what we know about them, we should anticipate that they're going to take some drastic measures. The only way to get rid of the unfairness, they thought, was to get rid of Joseph. And that's where the story's going to head. But before we get there, there are a couple of dreams, and we really need to make some sense of these. And here's what I, here's where I want to suggest again that this story is often very much mis- misinterpreted. People take this story, and here's what they do. They hear it the way Joseph's brothers and father heard it. They hear it as if Joseph's saying he's better than brothers, and even better than parents. But my view is that's a misinterpretation. That's a misunderstanding. That's jumping to conclusions. You see, God is the source of the dreams for Joseph, we suppose. He isn't giving Joseph dreams to share that are meant to cause a family split. It's the misinterpretation of these dreams that causes trouble. Let me put it this way. Joseph's family members jump to conclusions. If there had been Olympics at this time with a sport for jumping to conclusions, Joseph's family members would have won. So I really want to encourage you to pay attention here and not read the story in concert with Joseph's family members. In other words, don't misinterpret Joseph's dreams and his explanations as arrogance. Because if you do, you're also jumping to wrong conclusions. All right, so here we go. Let's keep reading the scriptures. We're going to pick up at verse 5. Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brothers and they added more to their hatred to him. Dun, 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 dun. He said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. Look, we were binding sheaves in the field and sure enough, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And sure enough, your sheaves came around and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers asked him, will you indeed reign over us? That's how they're interpreting it. Will you indeed have dominion over us? They added more to the hatred of him for his dreams and for his words. All right, so the way the dream is framed before Joseph even tells it is as his brother's getting angrier with him. It ends the same way. The whole first dream is bracketed between them being angry at him, their anger increasing. The text says his first dream, another one's coming, adds to his brother's hatred of him. And that's how it's framed. And so as a reader, we have two options. One, we can understand Joseph's dream like Joseph's brothers do, which is what most people do, and is what every preacher I've ever heard preach this story has done. Or option two, we can understand Joseph's dream 
from Joseph's perspective, which aligns with what actually happens later in the story. Now, the way most people misinterpret this, along with Joseph's brothers, is like this. Joseph and his brothers are in the field. They're binding sheaves. All this means is that they're going through a grain field, all right? They're cutting off stalks of grain and then they're bundling them. And when you put a grain in a bun, when you put grain in a bundle, you're creating bundles or sheaves. Same thing. So while Joseph and his brothers are bundling grain, in the dream, he says his bundle stands up straight. Okay? The bundles of grain, how, their bundles of grain, however, bow down to his. And they interpret this as Joseph saying they're gonna, he's gonna rule over them. They're gonna bow to him. That's their assumption. That's the conclusion they jump to. And because that's the conclusion they jump to, unwittingly, many readers and preachers do the same. But that's not what you want to do. Notice, by the way, that they don't let Joseph get a word in. He doesn't get to offer his interpretation. He doesn't uh, get to reject theirs. He's silenced by their assumptions, and their assumptions win the day. But as we get later in the story, what we'll learn is that this doesn't necessarily mean that Joseph will rule over them, although he does. But with regard to grain, that's a very important point. It simply means that from where he'll sit in the future, he will have an access to an abundance of grain that grows up. It will pile up. But from where they'll be sitting, there'll be a lack, right? It'll go down. In other words, and it'll be the same for the surrounding nations, the grain, the gathering around, right? In other words, there's going to be a famine, a shortage. That's what this is about. But they misinterpret it, and at least this huge misunderstanding, which in turn leads them to make some horrible decisions and do some horrible things. But isn't just that they jumped to one conclusion, they jumped to two. Let's look at the next dream, and we're going to notice, okay, the same pattern. Verse 9. He dreamed another dream. Dun, 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 dun. Right? That's what we should be thinking. Crap, another dream. So he dreamed another dream, and he told it to his brothers and said, Look, I've dreamed yet another dream. And see, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to me. Sun, moon, eleven stars. He told it to his father and to his brothers. His father rebuked him. Dun, 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 dun. And said to him, what is this dream you have dreamed? Will I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves down to you to the ground? His brothers envied him. Dun, 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 dun. But his father guarded the matter. Okay, do you see the pattern? The jumping to conclusions pattern? Dad and brothers both react the same way at this dream. Jacob rebukes Joseph. And rather than just assume Jacob's uh, interpretation is right... I think we need to question it. I think Jacob misinterprets Joseph's dream. Jacob, in the misinterpretation, thinks that he's the son. And he thinks that Rachel, who's dead, by the way, so how's she going to come and bow down? But that Rachel is the moon, and that the 11 stars are the brothers. No mention of Dina here, but that the 11 stars are the brothers, and they'll all eventually bow down to him. That's how Jacob, dad's interpreting it. But Joseph never confirms his father's interpretation. Why? Because it's a misinterpretation. The text doesn't confirm it either. It actually seems presumptuous for Jacob to be thinking this way about his son's dream. He's jumping to conclusions, as are his brothers. And so, again, we can misinterpret right along with Jacob and the brothers, or we can choose another option. The second option is to understand each sky element that's listed as representing a year. 
right? The sun is one year, the moon is one year, and the 11 stars are 11 years. And you add them up and you get 13 elements in the sky, which were used, the elements, right, to tell seasons and times, and it represents 13 years of seasons. And this is super significant because guess what? Joseph's brothers are getting ready to betray him. And guess how long it takes before Joseph ascends to royalty and, and then meets his brothers again after this? 13 years. So to reiterate, neither of these dreams is meant to be understood as Joseph being arrogant and saying he's going to rule over his family. Sure, he does become a ruler, but here he's not bragging about it. How could he? And he doesn't know, right? He doesn't know about it. Instead, in his dreams, he's simply being shown that at some point he'll have more grain than his brothers. And essentially, that'll be 13 years from the time of this dream. If he's 17 right now, which he is, that means he's going to be 30 when he meets back up with them in 13 years. And I just want to say, there's something to be learned from this about jumping to conclusions. For me, I too could probably be a professional in it if it were a sport. Maybe you can relate. Me ever, ever hear something and just assume you knew what it, what it meant? Right? Somebody ever do something and you were just sure you knew their attention, but later had to own up to being wrong about it? Ever fill in the blanks for a situation? You ever come up with scenarios in your head or write out mental scripts or try to fill in the gaps in a story? Ever live life like it's a Mad Lib? You know, one of those games where there's a bunch of blanks and you fill them in with wild words and uh, becomes a wild situation? Yeah, that's what's going on here with Jacob and his sons, the brothers. They're totally doing that, filling in the blanks and making up scenarios. And it's a misinterpretation, and it can be super unhealthy. I know from firsthand experience. I know the mental anguish that that can cause. I know the anxiety, stress, worry, fear, distrust, anger, frustration, hurt, and hate that it can cause. The scenarios that we make up are oftentimes the very source of our heartache and our stress. I mean, think about it, right? Say you're in a store shopping. You check out and you go, you head out to your vehicle and you get to where you thought you parked and your car is nowhere in sight. And you think immediately, someone's stolen my car. Don't act like you've never done that. It's a story you tell yourself in that moment. And then perhaps you come back to your senses, back to reality, and you remind yourself that you may be wrong. And so you get the sense to look around a little bit more. Maybe you forgot where you parked. Maybe it was in a different row, you think. Maybe it was on a different level. And eventually you find the car and all is well. But the point stands, oftentimes the stories we tell ourselves are the sources of our pain. Think of how many people tell themselves that God let them down. That there is no God because he didn't come through for them in a hard time. That God must not be real because of some suffering they've seen or experienced. That God is just a made-up thing because he's hardly been evident in their lives and in our world. These are stories that people tell themselves and they jump to major conclusions. There are huge gaps in these kinds of stories that people just overlook, oftentimes willingly. I mean, think of all the people who tell themselves that they're a victim, right? And they choose to live that way. Rather than viewing themselves as an overcomer and rising to the challenge, they cave in to what's easy, viewing themselves as a victim. Of course, I'm not saying people aren't victims. Sometimes they certainly are, but many times they're not, and it's just a mentality. And my point is, the story that one tells themselves is course charting. 
Jacob and his sons heard Joseph's story and told themselves a certain meaning, and that meaning wrecked their family. I recently read about a man who was uh, on vacation with his family. Well, he couldn't put down his phone to spend enough time with them during the days. And on the first day, he got an email from his boss saying, I need to talk with you when you get back. And that was it. There was nothing else. It drove him crazy all week, the entire vacation. Was he going to get in trouble? Did he forget to do something? Was he going to lose his job? Was the company in jeopardy? Did they wait to decide, uh, wait for him to leave to decide to let him go? What was the office talking about him in his absence? Did somebody rat on him about something? All these stories ran through his head day and night during the vacation. It tortured him. And when he got back, his boss told him, he went into the office and saw his boss, and his boss told him they wanted to give him a promotion. You see how the stories we tell ourselves can torment us. Have you ever tried to call or text someone and they didn't get back to you? You then started assuming the worst? Oh, that person is always with their phone. Why are they not answering me, right? Why are they not responding to me? Maybe they're mad at me. Maybe they're ghosting me. Maybe they're avoiding me. Maybe I did something wrong to them. And then later you just learn that their phone got lost or destroyed and the battery died. And that's why they didn't reply sooner. Yeah, we all do this. But I think something we can take away from this passage is this. Whenever there's a dun-dun-dun-dun moment in life, don't jump to conclusions, I need to hear that just as much as any of y'all, right? All right, uh, let, let me actually just put it another way, which actually is this week's bottom line, okay? It's this, that changing your stories can change you. Changing your stories can change you. Lately, I've been practicing with one of the kids on shooting basketball, Right, particularly the shooting form. And usually if there's a miss or a few misses in a row, this particular kid will just get down on themselves and beat themselves up and start sulking or verbalize out loud the frustration. But I've, I've been trying to uh, coach this particular kid of mine to stop that. And instead to say in their mind when they miss a shot, give me the ball, give me the ball, right? So that in shifting the story that that kid is telling themselves, I'm not a good shooter, I can't make anything to give me the ball, Something dramatic can change, right? The story they're telling themselves is going to change them. Had Jacob and his 11 other sons changed the story they told themselves, they could have changed the history of their family. It's a good reminder for us. The more we're in scripture with brothers and sisters in the faith, the more we're given the spirit more to work with, the more we're being intentional about our faith life, the more opportunities we give God to change our stories and in turn change us. Amen. Amen. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. His brothers went to shepherd their father's flock in Shechem. Shechem? <laughs> you ready? Dun, 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 dun. What, what recently has happened in Shechem in this story? The whole the Dina fiasco. The brothers destroying the place and plundering it. It looks like although Jacob had moved on from Shechem, he hadn't totally moved on. This is another setup for disaster. Maybe you can relate. You move on from something, but not totally. It's still got a little bit of a grip on you. You see how by walking through the whole of Genesis, by the way, as slow as this might be, is allowing us to pick up on things like this, how the story's unfolding, and to connect these little dots? Let's keep reading. Picking up at verse 13. Israel said to Joseph, Aren't your brothers shepherding the flock in Shechem? Come, and I'll send you to them. He said to him, Here I am. 
He said to him, Go now, look into the well-being of your brothers and the well-being of the flock, and bring me word. Oh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. You notice the first word here? Israel. So in this case, we should be understanding that perhaps dad is dispatching Joseph in more of an official way because he's acting as Israel now. It's not just dad dispatching him. It's dad who is the leader of this budding nation. So this is an official dispatching that we have going on. And of course, he's being dispatched into the place of unpleasant memories. But he gives the at your service remark Joseph does in Hebrew, Hineni, here I am. Now, just think back to earlier in the story when Joseph was with his brothers. He brought word back to his father then. And what kind of word was it? It was a bad report. And so when we hear that Jacob is dispatching Joseph again, we should anticipate some more drama. Ready? Dun, 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 dun. Joseph goes... Notice that he's not alone. He is, he's not with the brothers for some reason, but he, he goes. And it's going to be more than a decade from this point on that he sees his dad again. 13 years to be exact. So let's keep reading the story. 15. A man found him. Dun, 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 dun. And there he was, wandering. Dun, 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 dun. In the field. The man questioned him saying, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Tell me please where they're shepherding. And the man said, they've traveled from here, dun, 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 for I've heard them say, let's go to Dothan. Anytime we have an unknown figure appear, a certain nameless character, in this case, a man, something's up. We don't get a lot of details about this guy, but we do know that he gives Joseph some direction. We've seen other characters like this, haven't we? Whoever it was that Jacob wrestled at the Jabbok River, for instance, this guy here helps Joseph and gives him what he needs to know. And I think sometimes in life, right, there are these sort of people that we encounter. They come along and they say something that gets us on the right track. Maybe it's a short sentence or something quotable. But in that moment, man, we needed it. We sure needed it. And it had a profound influence on us. You know, I remember in seventh grade, I had gone up to my math teacher's desk to ask a question. And if I remember correctly, we had this assignment to make scaled down models or replicas of our middle school, the whole thing. And I think I was asking him about uh, my potential grade on some portion of that. And he looked right at me, looked me right in the eyes. He had never looked at me like this. And he said, you know, how come you remind me of me? You could do so much more, but you often do just what it takes to get by. That was it. And nearly 40 years later, I can still remember that 30 years later, whatever. I remember that. I remember that very room that we were sitting in. It has stuck with me. And from time to time, that statement has actually come back to me. It came back to me as a college student. And then later as a teacher, it's come back to me when I've been coaching. Sometimes we have someone show up and say something out of nowhere that just sticks with us and perhaps gets us through that moment. Me ever have anyone like that in your life? I encourage you to reflect on that in the coming week. All right, let's read. Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. They saw him from far off, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. Dun, 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 dun. They said to one another, here comes this dream master. Come now, let's kill him and cast him into one of the wells, and we'll say an evil animal has devoured him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. And Reuben heard it and delivered him out of their hand and said, let's not take his life. 
And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this well that's in the wilderness, but lay no hand on him, that he might... And Reuben said this, that he might deliver him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So they've jumped to the conclusions, or they've jumped to conclusions to the point that they're ready to kill him now. Maybe they anticipate that once again, daddy's little tattletale has come to dig up more dirt on them and take back another bad report. It's likely a culmination of all of this stuff, all this years of stuff, the stories they've told themselves have led to this point of no return, to this precipice of disaster and they're going to follow through this is it and look at what they call him a dream master the irony is he never tried to interpret either of his dreams they did and they failed miserably their misinterpretation of his dream is what has led them to anger and plotting it's what will cause a rip in the family they are the ones acting as dream masters not joseph but they're far from it they're the opposite of dream masters they're dream failures and interpretation failures, right? They're clinging to this desperate story that they've told themselves. If they could or would just change their story, they could create the space for God to change them. But that's not what happens. And so notice first that their made-up scenario, or notice first their made-up scenario. Joseph has a, a dream master saying he'll rule them. It leads to their anger. And their anger leads to their plotting. And their plotting to kill leads to planning a cover-up and lying, and their lying will lead to trickery. It goes back to the point I've made so many times that sin rarely exists in isolation. Where one sin exists, you can often find more. That's certainly the case here. I'm guessing you've probably seen that in your own life too. If you've ever raised children, you know exactly what I'm talking about. They do something wrong, and when they're confronted, they lie about it. Sin rarely exists in isolation. They want to tell the story that an evil animal uh, attacked Joseph. They want to tell that to cover up their murder. That'll be important later, but Reuben steps in. Reuben is no stranger to trouble, of course. He took one of his dad's wives and defiled her and shamed, shamed her and dad. He committed adultery and incest, but he's the oldest in the family, you remember, the chart, and he has some clout. But he devises a plan to get back in dad's good graces. Ah, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into the pit, the, the well or the cistern. By the way, these were big uh, rock holes that gather runoff water in the of rain in the rainy season, right? It's dry at this point. And Reuben thinks, man, if we can just throw him in now, maybe I can sneak back and rescue him. And when I do, father will appreciate me and he'll bless me. It's a way to get back in dad's good graces. Again, sin rarely exists in isolation. And in this case, we also get to see how the stories we tell ourselves and construct, especially when sin is involved, often don't go at all according to plan. All right, let's continue reading. 23. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped Joseph of his tunic. Ready? Da, 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 da. The special tunic that was on him. And they took him and threw him into the well. Da, 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 da. The well was empty. There was no water in it. They sat down to eat bread. And they lifted up their eyes and looked. And sure enough, a caravan of Ishmaelites dun, 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 was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing spices and balm and myrrh, going to carry it down to Egypt. Egypt? Egypt. Dun, 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 dun. This is the kind of thing 
you find among sickos, isn't it? They plot someone's murder, leave someone for dead, and then sit down to have a meal and watch them suffer. That's unthinkable, the way that people can treat others, right? Much less the Ken. I mean, does Joseph overhear their conversations at this point while he's in the pit? Yeah, maybe it physically hurt to be thrown down into the pit, but what about emotionally? I mean, there's the abandonment, but then the watching them eat and hearing them talk about their plots against him? Can you imagine the depths of his pain? Have we ever been in a spot like that where someone had someone you'd place trust in just burned you? And you learned that they were talking bad about you. They were maybe kind to your face, but nasty when they thought you weren't around. You caught a bad email or overheard a bad phone call or someone told you that they were spreading rumors. It's a painful thing. Painful. And what Joseph's feeling here must have been awful. And as they're eating, something curious happens. A caravan of Ishmaelites are seen in the distance. They're approaching. And you remember, Ishmael was an uncle. He was a relative, but also viewed as an outsider, perhaps even an enemy. He's not part of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not Abraham, Ishmael, and Jacob. They're heading to Egypt. And of course, we know from earlier in the story that nothing good happens to God's people in Egypt. But these Ishmaelites, they've got money, they've got goods, and so we have a setup in the works. But before we get to the next bit, let me let me say a bit about Joseph's tunic. It's often described as his colored coat or technicolor dream coat, but it's not. What this is is a ceremonial garment. It was meant to denote leadership and the inheritance of the birthright and blessing. And in, in that case, it should have been Reuben's, but Reuben lost out on that chance because of his behavior. It's a special garment that Joseph received for being the firstborn of Rachel. Jacob's favorite wife. And so when the brothers take this garment from Joseph, it's meant to symbolize they're stripping him of the inheritance and the father's blessing. Okay? All right, let's keep reading. 26. Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come and let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Dun, 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 dun. And let, and not let our hand be on him. For he's our brother, our flesh. His brothers listened to him. Midianites, dun, 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 who were merchants passed by, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And the merchants brought Joseph into Egypt. Dun, 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 dun. So we have these two groups, the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. And as you know, Ishmael is a son of Abraham, and so was Midian. Ishmael was born to Hagar. But later in the story, Hagar, as you know, is renamed to Keturah, and Midian is born to her. And so these are both sons of Abraham and Hagar, Keturah. Their tribes or clans are traveling and working together, the Ishmaelites and Midianites. But the big point is they're not necessarily on good terms with Isaac's family. There's a family breach, and now that Isaac's sons have stooped so low as to sell them to the family enemy, this definitely spells trouble. This should not be happening, and especially not this way. Joseph is taken to Egypt, and of course, that sets the stage for drama. All right, let's finish out this chapter, okay? It reads like this, 29 is where you pick up. Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph wasn't in the pit, and he tore his clothes. Dun, 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 dun. He returned to his brothers and said, the child is no more. And as for me, where will I go? 
They took Joseph's tunic and killed a male goat, dun, 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 and dipped the tunic in the blood. They sent the special tunic and had it brought to their father and said, We have found this. Examine it now and see if it's your son's tunic or not. He recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. An evil animal has devoured him. Joseph is surely torn to pieces. Jacob tore his clothes dun, 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 and put sackcloth on his waist and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, for I will go down to my son mourning to Sheol. His father wept for him. The Midianites sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the chief of the guard. Dun, 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 dun. Now, there's a lot to be said here, but I want to note several things. First, note that as Joseph is stripped from his garment, both Reuben and Jacob end up stripping themselves of their garments, too, in an act of mourning. Second, notice that Reuben's plan doesn't go as he had hoped. As I said, that's often the case when we're plotting and sin is involved. And third, and this is key, notice their course of action to trick their father using a male goat. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's exactly the animal that Jacob used to trick his father and to give him an Esau's blessing. In other words, things have come full circle. And in the end, Jacob thinks he'll never die or that he'll die never seeing his son again. And fourth, descendants of Abraham, the Midianites, sell a promised, or the Ishmaelites, sell a promised descendant of Abraham, Joseph, uh, to the Midianites, who in turn sell him to the house of Pharaoh, just like Abraham had previously traded his wife, Sarah, into the house of Pharaoh. And how'd that turn out? Not well. It almost cost Abraham his life. Do you notice all the similar elements in these stories? It's the same family. Things are being passed on from one generation to the next, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. It's insane to see these things being handed on from one generation to the next, but that's exactly what's happening. And what just blows my mind is to think about how had Jacob and Esau told themselves a different story, what would have happened? Had they just told themselves, we don't have to separate over things. Or had Joseph's family members not jumped to conclusions and told themselves false stories about Joseph and his dreams, all of this could have been prevented. This should really cause us to stop and think about how often we do such things and the ways we do such things, the stories we tell ourselves, the way that we, the ways that we fill in gaps, how we make assumptions. It can all have devastating consequences for us and those around us. Change your story, change you. Change your story, God can change you. And I want to challenge you in the coming days to think about how you speculate and guess and hypothesize and create scenarios and the like. I want to encourage you to try your best to curb that and instead to just be in the moment. Again, I'm preaching to myself here too. Let the past be the past and don't dwell on the future. Just take things for what they are right now. There's an old quote attributed to Theodore Roosevelt, but he actually got it from a man named Bill Widener. It says this, do what you can with what you've got where you are. Do what you can with what you've got where you are. A quote often attributed to John Wesley, which he actually didn't say, but 
it's often attributed to him, um, is one that I still find instructive. It's quite similar to that one from Roosevelt, but it's still very Wesleyan in spirit. Spirit, And so I like to, I'd like to use it here. It says, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as you ever can. Although Wesley may have never said that again, it's certainly a very Wesleyan statement. And you can only live that out by being present, in the present, in the moment, here and now. In short, dun-dun-dun-dun, by being intentional about it. Amen? Amen.